This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, amen. Friends, isn't it good to know that the battle belongs to the Lord? I'm, I'm encouraged when I, when I think about that, so uh, I am absolutely honored to be here with you uh, this morning. My name is Jeff. Everybody say hi, Jeff. Well, it is nice to meet you. I'm glad I am among friends. I tell you what, I think the world of First Baptist Suffolk and of your pastor, it was a joy to get to see Melissa uh, this morning. I had the privilege of working with uh, Thurman years ago. Uh, I was the youth pastor at Bethel Baptist Church when Caleb was in sixth grade. Caleb, their son. So I uh, got a chance to hang out with the family and get to know them. And I just think the world of Pastor Thurman he, uh, he not only hired me to be a youth pastor, um, he did my, my wedding. He performed the, my, my wedding where, where I, I married my wife. That's what you do at weddings, um, in case you were not familiar. Um, but, but I, so I think the world of Thurman, I am absolutely honored uh, to be here preaching uh, for you. As Pastor David mentioned earlier, I work with the SBC of Virginia, so I bring you greetings from the over 800 churches across the Commonwealth and a couple state lines uh, that, um, that I want to, want to say hello and, and our executive director, Brian Autry. Uh, my job as the regional guy uh, for the SBCV is to let churches and pastors know you are not alone. So first off, that's what I want you to know. I want you to know that you are not alone. I want Thurman to know that he is not alone. I want you to know that you're not alone as you minister. Whatever ministry you're in, whether you're in women's ministry, we've got a phenomenal network of women's ministry uh, workers across the state. Whether, whether you are um, in youth ministry, we've got a phenomenal network of, of youth pastors. Whether you are planting churches or replanting churches or revitalizing, there's, there, there's some pictures for you. Whatever you're doing, we want you to know you're not alone. I'll tell pastors, listen, I'm going to tell you, you are not alone until you're sick and tired of hearing me say it. And then I'm going to say it a little bit more. In fact, I'm going to tell you, you're not alone so often that sometimes a pastor is going to call me and say, Jeff, would you leave me alone? And I'm going to say, nope, uh, because you are not alone. And I First Suffolk, you modeled this so well. It was so encouraging for me to hear from uh, Pastor David how you recently uh, cooperated with a, a group of other churches to bless Pastor Waldo over on the Eastern Shore. Uh, he's one of our Haitian pastors. And as a result of uh, your influence on him, uh, he has led his church to affiliate with the SBC of Virginia. And so I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do through that partnership. So I'm thankful for your church. I I am thankful for your pastor. One of the things that Pastor Thurman did uh, for me early on is he simply discipled me. He met with me on a regular basis and we opened up the Bible together. Sometimes we'd open up other books and we'd just talk about life. You see, I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, but I got here as quick as I could. All right. I, I grew up uh, in another denomination and I was in that denomination and I was reading my Bible and I said, well, I, you know, I know we do this, but I'm reading this. And, and I kept looking over at this Baptist church in the area, and I said, that, 
that kind of looks like what I'm reading. Um, and so I met with Thurman and he helped me think through some of that. And then we talked about ministry and he just invested in me. Let me just, this is a sidebar. We're just warming up, y'all. We're getting to the sermon. Never underestimate the power and the impact you can have with a couple of conversations of discipleship. Never underestimate the influence that God can work through you in the life of a younger believer somebody that you're helping along in the faith. So I hope that you are discipling somebody. I hope that you're being discipled. And I hope that you know that as you do, you are not alone. I want to talk to you this morning about being a praying church, being a praying church. So if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to get you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Now, as we talk about being a praying church, I I know um, that you are a praying church. So I'm not trying to get you to do something you don't do. I'm just trying to throw some fuel on the fire of what God's already doing. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a child, now I'm going to let you, uh, or maybe young at heart, I'm going to let you uh, define or describe that. Um, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw me a picture while I'm preaching. I want you to draw me a picture of what you hear me talking about. And at the end of the service, come show me what you drew. All right, so if you're listening and you think, I, I, I want to draw, you draw something and you, you show me after the service. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be as we consider what it means to be a praying church. Now, I'm convinced that a praying church knows at least three things. Number one, a praying church knows that she has a powerful sovereign. That is, she knows God is in control. Aren't you glad God's in control? When, when, I, when I turn on the news... I'm encouraged to remember that God is in control. When I look at what's going on in our world, I'm encouraged to remember God is in control. When I look at what's going on in my living room, I'm encouraged to know God is in control. I've got a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, two boys, which means I don't have a clue what I'm doing. All right, and I'm encouraged to know that God, right, God is in control. We have a powerful sovereign, and God accomplishes his victories through the prayers of his people. So anytime we wonder, God, I know the battle belongs to you. How are you going to move in this situation? Let's remember that God accomplishes his victories through the prayers of his people. We know that we have a powerful sovereign. We know that we have a praying Savior, The Bible tells me that Jesus prayed. As he went throughout his earthly ministry, he would often go to be with the Father in prayer. The night before Jesus called the 12 disciples to follow him, do you know what he did? He he spent the night in prayer. Remember, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, what did he do? He went up on the Mount of Olives and he knelt down amidst the crooked limbs of those those twisted limbs of of those olive trees and he knelt down there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you remember what he did? He prayed. And do you remember what he prayed? He said, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? But yours be done. Jesus prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible tells me that he went from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. And there he was, stretched out on the cross, stretched out for my sins, paying the full penalty of my sins and of your sins. There was Jesus the Christ on the cross. And do you remember what he did on the cross? He prayed. And do you remember what he prayed? Father, forgive them. 
I'm so glad that I have a praying Savior. Aren't you glad you got a praying Savior? And as though that weren't enough, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in, uh, from the cross. And the Bible tells me that even right now, Jesus is praying for me. That's Romans 8. Even right now, as I preach and as you listen, Jesus is praying for us. And here's what that means. If you ever feel like you can't pray, maybe you're here this morning, you're like, Jeff, uh, sermon on prayer, I mean, that, that's gonna be a really good sermon. I mean, it's gonna be a real, Jeff, really, it's gonna be a great sermon. Maybe just, it's gonna be a phenomenal sermon. But I can't pray. And you think for this reason or that reason or whatever, I can't pray. Here's what I want you to remember. When you feel like you can't pray, Jesus is praying. So you run to him. You run to him. We've got a praying savior. So we know we've got a powerful sovereign. We've got a praying savior and we've got a present spirit. We have a present spirit. Paul writes that even when we don't know what to pray, the spirit groans for us and with us and, and is in us. So let's not go through our lives in our own power, but through his. All right, so again, we're, we're just on the on-ramp, y'all. We're getting ready to jump onto the interstate of the text. We're gonna, we're gonna get going here, but we're just on the on right? All right, so we know that we should be a praying church because we've got a powerful sovereign, we've got a praying savior, we've got a present spirit, so let's be a praying people. Let's be a praying people. The triune God of the Bible is inviting you to pray. More than that, he is commanding you to pray. Jesus said in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. What an outstanding promise. Jesus looks at you and says, whatever you ask, blank check, here you go. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Why wouldn't we take him up on that offer? I wanna take him up on that offer. I wanna be a praying husband. I wanna be a praying dad. I wanna be a praying man. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a people of prayer. I know this spirit is alive and well at First Baptist Suffolk, so let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 12. We're going to walk through the text, first 19 verses, and then we're going to draw out some principles to help us understand how to be a praying church. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Let's just stop right there. You know Herod the king. You've heard of Herod. You're familiar if you've read uh, the, the New Testament. You know Herod is a bad dude, right? He is no good. When he comes onto the scene, the minor key starts playing and the ominous music rolls in and the clouds cover up the sun and everything good seems to fade. Herod was a long-standing opponent to Christ and the cause of Christ. So Herod is up to no good. Even here, what's he doing? He's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. It's a sobering thing to realize that we have brothers and sisters around the world who right now are suffering physical persecution. We have brothers and sisters who even this morning are imprisoned and are suffering and they will not know freedom this side of heaven. The next freedom they know will be that ultimate freedom when they breathe their last. Herod's spirit is still very much alive today. 
About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You remember James, the brother of John. James and John, those brothers, the sons of thunder, as they were called. It was James and John whose mama went to Jesus and said, Jesus, give my boys a good seat. I mean, come on. I know everybody else needs a seat too, but give my boys the best seat. And you remember what Jesus did? Jesus looked at them and they said, he said, can you drink the cup which I'm going to drink? And they lied to Jesus. Never a good idea, by the way. All right. They lied to Jesus and said, yeah, we can drink it. What is James doing right here in this text? He's drinking the cup which Jesus drank as he follows his Lord in martyrdom. James, the brother of John, drank the cup which Jesus drank. Herod ran him through with the sword. Verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And we know exactly what he intended to do with Peter, the same thing he did with James. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread, which meant a number of things, but one of the things it meant is that Herod couldn't try him right now. Not without great uh, upheaval coming as a result. So he said, I'm just going to arrest him and I'm going to hold him. And then after this season is over, after their little festival is over, I'm going to parade him in front of the people. Because Herod was thinking, you keep talking about King Jesus this and King Jesus that and his kingdom of uh, this, that and the other. He said, Herod said, I'm going to show you who the real king is. I'm going to parade Peter in front of you and then I'm going to kill him just as I did James. So he arrested Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse four, I love how Luke writes this. It goes from bad to worse to worse. And when A, he had seized him, B, he put him in prison, and C, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's no less than 16 soldiers who would have been guarding this one man, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So here's Herod on the throne, laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. James, the brother of John, is dead. Peter is in prison. Peter knows what's coming. What happens? Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That is the hinge on which this whole passage hangs. If you've got a pen or pencil or lipstick or mascara or anything that'll mark anything, mark that verse. Don't miss it. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We know Herod's spirit is still very much alive today. The question is, will we be a praying church? Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, God's going to show up, but he's going to do it at the perfect time. It's almost as though, the way Luke writes the story, it almost feels like God was procrastinating. Now, we know God is always on time, but we wonder, don't we? I mean, I know God's timing is perfect, but every once in a while, I'm going to check my clock and just think, God, do you know, are you sure? Right? It's almost as though, in this moment, God is procrastinating. He waits until the very night when Herod was about to bring him out. I don't know how things work in your household, but I told you, we've got two boys, 15 and 12 years old. 
and one of our sons, I won't tell you which to protect the guilty, uh, but he, he, is, he is notorious. Uh, it, it, okay, buddy, it's time for bed. Oh, oh, dad, I've got some homework I gotta do. And you waited till bedtime to, uh, we talked about this earlier, but it's bedtime, but now you've, okay, all right. Yeah, dad, I've got a project. Oh, you got a, pro okay, when's the project due? Tomorrow. Oh, of course it is. All right, but when did you learn about this project? Three months ago. Okay, we might should have done something a little bit before right now, but all right, here, here we are. All right, let's, let's knock this, this project out. Look, you're the same way, aren't we all? We're, here's God waiting until the very night. And what's Peter doing? Peter was sleeping. He's sleeping. I love it. He knew that death awaited him. But he knew on the other side of death was a greater life. And so he could rest. He could rest. And what happened? He was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Luke's just saying, man, this thing gets worse to worse to worse, all right? He's, he's bound with two chains, one on one hand, one on the other. Between two soldiers, they would have been rotated out every four hours so that they didn't fall asleep even if he did. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. Now I love that. Don't, don't miss that. It wasn't enough for the angel to turn on the light. Right? Maybe that sounds a little bit like your house. I told you about our boys, and it's the same. It's not, it's not enough for us to turn on the light and say, okay, time to get up, right? When I was growing up, my, my mama used to say, she'd turn on the light, she'd say, Jeffrey Mingy, feet on the floor. And I'd roll over and say, mama, just a minute, just a minute. No, Jeff, I want those feet on this floor. I'm not leaving. And then she'd start grabbing the blanket, right? And that's when you know she means business. All right, I better get my feet on the floor. That's what the angel's doing. It turns the light on, strikes Peter on the side, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. With the word from your Lord, the chains can fall off your hands or your heart. So do you have chains this morning? Right? Do, do you have things that are just burdening you beyond despair? With the word from your Lord, those chains can fall off. And, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed A, the first, and B, the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Now, I wasn't there when it happened, but I'm guessing that if Peter's anything like me, and he is, and if you're anything like Peter, and you are, what happened here is that Peter, man, they went through the, the first guard, and he thought, this is awesome. This, this is wild. And then they go past the second guard. He thought, this is amazing. God, you, you're amazing. What's happening? And then he gets to the iron gate, and his heart kind of sinks. And he says, oh, man, there's an iron gate. I mean, God, you, the way you got us through that first soldier was awesome. The way you got us through that second soldier, amazing. But now there's an iron gate. I guess, God, I guess this is where our story ends. How fickle is the human heart? 
God moved in this way in our past and in that way in our past and in that way when we thought there was no way. And we come to the iron gate and we think, well, I guess he can't do anything here. Right? How fickle the human heart. Let's not forget, just as surely as he moved in the past, he will move in the future. He will move right now. What happened to the iron gate? It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and what were they doing? Praying. They were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, Rhoda is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I love Rhoda because she's like me and I'm like her. Watch what happens to Rhoda. Recognizing Peter's voice. So she knew that it was, she knew it was Peter's voice. She had been praying for Peter. Right? They were praying for him and God, would you deliver Peter? God, would you do something miraculous? God, would you get Peter out of the prison? God, would you deliver Peter? And she hears Peter's voice outside the gate. Now, she's the servant girl, so her job is to open the gate when somebody knocks. But what does she do? What does she do? Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, Rhoda, I love you, but that's not the point. Open the gate, Rhoda. Let Peter in. Rhoda says, oh my goodness, we've been praying that Peter would get out of prison. Oh my, Peter's at the gate. Oh, what should I do? What should I do? I'm going to run inside and tell him that Peter's outside. No, Rhoda, let Peter in. They'll figure out that he's there. I love Rhoda, I do, because I sympathize with her. They said to her, you are out of your mind, you don't say. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now again, I wasn't there when it happened, but I've got a question for the early church. Wouldn't you want to see his angel? I mean, even if it was his angel, wouldn't you say, okay, let's go see, right? They're, they're dismissive. I'd be, okay, let's, where? where? Uh, can I see him? What's, right? So, so he, now it's his angel, verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. You don't say, Luke. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Now, why would he do that? Because he knew that they couldn't attract outside attention without causing trouble. Uh, Thurman is right now serving with uh, some of our uh, workers in a, a sensitive part of the world. Many of them probably have to be careful when and where and how they worship. This past uh, February, I had the privilege of going and, and uh, serving alongside some of our uh, Southern Baptist workers in Rwanda. And they had a, a house church right there in, in Kilgali, the, the um, capital of, of Rwanda. And, and we, we went and we worshiped with them on a Sunday morning. And they sang these beautiful songs. Now, most, I had, most of them, I had no idea what they were singing. Because I didn't speak, don't speak the language at all. There was one that I was like, oh, I know that tune. Um, but they would sing at a whisper. Why? Because they couldn't attract the attention of their neighbors. So after the service, we went into their backyard where they had built a homemade baptismal. 
and they had six baptisms that morning. And they're doing great work. I tell you what, I left that trip proud of our Southern Baptist workers around the world. The sun never sets on Southern Baptist missionaries. And I'm so thankful for those that are on the field. So Peter says, okay, be quiet. They, they, he he, he uh, uh, tells them, motions with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, not the James that was killed, but another James, the James that's the, that's the leader of this church. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That's Herod's way of saying, I'm, I'm, forget it, I'm going golfing. That's what Herod did at Caesarea. He said, I'm going to the beach. I'm done with this. You're dead. You're guilty. I'm out. That's pretty much what Herod did. Now, this text is not ultimately about Herod on the throne. It's not ultimately about Peter in prison. This text is about the church in prayer and God accomplishing his victories through the prayers of his people. So let's be a praying people. Let's just, let's draw a couple of uh, principles out uh, from this text. Okay, number one, because God delivered James through death and delivered Peter from death, we pray in all circumstances. We pray in all circumstances. Now, why would God allow Herod to kill James, but not allow Herod to kill Peter? Why does he sometimes rescue us and other times not? To be honest, I don't know. But I'm reminded what some older believers have told me, Jeff, let God be God. There are gonna be some things in life that you just don't understand. And the Lord has spoken clearly and sufficiently and you're still gonna have questions and that's okay. What I do know is that God is always unwaveringly good, and that's more than a cliche. It's a reality that helps me think about life. God in his goodness has the ability to release Peter for freedom and sustain John through martyrdom. One pastor explained, so it isn't as though God fumbled the ball with James and scored a touchdown with Peter. God never fumbles the ball. If he turns it over to the other side for a few downs, it's because he knows a better way to win. God's actions always display his goodness, both his active intervention and his loving refrain. So we praise him for his rescue and we trust him in his restraint. The difficulties you experience in life are moments for prayer. Let me say the same thing a couple of different ways. When the situation goes down, Make sure your prayer life goes up. When life feels out of control, go to the one who is in control. And how do we go to him? In prayer. We go to him in prayer. This is what the early church did. They prayed. The degrading situation was a catapult for prayer, and it ought to be for us as well. Number two, because God used the earnest prayers of the church to deliver Peter, we pray expectantly. Now, this is tough for many people. We've offered tons of prayers that went seemingly unanswered, right? And though we're deeply appreciative for that theologian Garth Brooks, 
we don't always agree that some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, right? In their songs, I'm like, yeah, it's like, ah, uh, maybe, Garth, maybe, right? We wrestle with this. We're, we're called to pray with a sense of expectancy, but we struggle with this. And the church in Acts 12 is no exception. Did the church in Acts chapter 12 believe that prayer worked? Well, on the one hand, we say, of course they believe. That's why they were praying. They believed it worked. But on the other hand, I'm not so certain. Otherwise, they would have believed it was Peter at the door, right? There's no way it could be Peter. Rhoda, you're great. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. Go on outside, right? Did they believe that prayer worked? Well, yes, and they struggled with it, right? Let me tell you two stories. There's a story about a, a little country church in a little country town and they found out that the owner of a bar was moving into their town, was going to build this new bar. And they knew this owner of this bar. He had built bars in other towns. And they knew the, the, uh, just the evil that he bought with them. I mean, this just wasn't a bar. This was a bad dude bringing a bad place. And so they began to pray. They prayed that God would stop the building of this bar. One night a, a storm came along and lightning struck the construction of that new bar and built it, uh, burnt it, it, didn't build it, it burnt it to the ground. The owner of the bar sued the church. The church denied responsibility. Now imagine you're the judge. How are you going to rule? Right? You see the tension. Uh, did they believe the prayer was going to work? Well, yeah, but not to, I mean, I'm not guilty, right? No way. Okay, that, that story is fiction. Let, let me tell you a real one. Dr. Helen Rosevere was serving as a missionary in Zaire, Africa. She once helped a mother of a two-year-old little girl give birth to a premature baby. Sadly, the mother died from complications during the delivery. The two-year-old little girl was understandably devastated that her mother passed away. Keeping the newborn alive was a struggle for Dr. Rosevere and her medical team. They had no incubator, so keeping the premature baby warm became the most pressing challenge, especially during the chilly, windy nights that were typical of Central Africa. Their best option was a hot water bottle. Unfortunately, the only hot water bottle they had burst that night as they were filling it. So they did what they could, putting the baby as close to the fire as safely as possible and sleeping between the baby and the door to protect it from harmful drafts. The next morning, Dr. Rosevere went to have prayers with the orphanage children. She gave the kids various things to pray about and mentioned the newborn baby and her two-year-old sister. She told them about the hot water bottle bursting and their struggle to keep the baby warm. During the prayer time, a 10-year-old little girl named Ruth boldly prayed for God to send a hot water bottle that day so the baby wouldn't die. She finished her prayer with this request. While you are about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her? Little Ruth's audacious prayer took the good doctor off guard and put her on the spot. She didn't know if she could honestly say amen. She didn't believe God would or maybe even could answer such a prayer. The only way she thought it would be possible was if she received a package from her homeland, which she hadn't in nearly four years. But later that afternoon, a 22-pound package arrived at the doctor's doorstep. 
She was so excited that she couldn't open the package alone, so she sent for the orphanage children to come to her home. Together, they opened the large cardboard box, and one by one, Dr. Rosevier revealed its contents. Along with knitted jerseys and bandages and some dried fruits, she eventually pulled out a brand new hot water bottle. The place, of course, erupted with tears of joy. Moments later, Ruth, the little girl who prayed, rushed up to the box and asked about the dolly. And yes, sitting at the bottom of the box was a small, beautifully dressed dolly. As it turns out, the package had been sent five months earlier by the doctor's former Sunday school class whose leader had felt God's prompting to send a water bottle. One of the girls from the class had also put in a doll for an African girl. What a model of faith-filled praying. Let's be like little Ruth. Let's pray expectantly. God, would you send a hot water bottle? And while you're at it, how about a dolly? So that they'll know you really love them. What a model of faith-filled praying. Now, there's a difference between childlike expectation and childish arrogance in prayer. Childlike expectation says, God, would you do it? I believe you can. Even if you don't, I know you're good, but I believe you can. Childish arrogance says, God, how could you not? Don't you know me? Haven't, haven't you been watching me? Aren't you supposed to be strong? Right? Let's, let's avoid childish arrogance. Let's pursue childlike expectation. We know that God hears our prayers. Oh, that God would stir in us expectant prayers, that we would be like William Carey who said, expect great things for, from God and attempt great things for God. And I might add, pray great things from God. Number three, because God answered the persistent prayer of the early church, we pray continually. Verse 12 tells us that in the middle of the night when Peter came to his senses, he went to the house where they, the believers, were praying. Present tense, middle of the night, persistent prayer. So let me simply ask, what are you praying for right now and how long would you be willing to pray? How long would you be willing to pray? What are you praying for today? And how long would you be willing to pray? God answered the persistent prayer of the early church, so we ought to pray continually. Jesus told us parables that we might not lose heart in prayer, but we might press on in prayer. Be a people of prayer. Fourthly and finally, because God used the earnest prayers for the ultimate advancement of his mission, we pray for that end. It's beyond the scope of our text this morning. But if I were to take you to verse 24, you would see that Luke summarizes this moment with these words, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke uses that phrase throughout the book of Acts to help us see that the gospel is still advancing. It's still going forth. It's still making progress. And God is using the prayers of his people to do this. So let's pray for that end. How many of us want to see the word of God increase and multiply in our community, in our homes, in our families? How many of us have a, a, a grandson or a granddaughter or a son or a daughter who are far from the Lord and we just want to pray them back? 
We just, we want to pray him back. We want the Lord to move. We want the word of God to increase and multiply in their life, in their heart. It will through prayer. How many of us know the power of a praying grandma? Right? I mean, some of us, your rear end is in the pew right now because you had a praying grandma. And she won't going to stop praying until you were in that pew. Right? How many of us know the power of prayer? Let's be people who pray for the advancement of God's mission. I want to show you a map. I think we've got a map. Yep, there it is. This is a map. Right in the center of that circle is you. Right where we're at right now, if I did it right. In the past 12 months, almost 842 family units have moved into a two-mile radius from First Baptist Church Suffolk. Here's the question. Will you pray for them? Will you pray that God will use this church to reach those people? That God will use this church to minister to them in their moments of weakness? Because some of them are in a battle right now and they don't know what we sang earlier, that the battle belongs to the Lord and they need you to tell them. They don't know that Christ has already accomplished all that is necessary for their salvation and he is calling them to himself, would you pray for them? What joy is on the other side of prayer? What results, what love, what treasures, if we would but take our Lord's invitation to pray? David mentioned earlier that today begins the week of prayer that is focused on Vision Virginia. Through your prayers and through your offering, churches have been planted, missionaries have been sent, the lost have been reached, baptisms have been happening. Let's pray that God would continue to do it. Let's pray that God would continue to move. Again, the word of God increased and multiplied. I want to invite you this morning to pray. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been praying, but you need to redouble that effort. Maybe you've been absent from the school of prayer and today is the day you say, okay, let me re-enroll. Let me show back up to school and get back to class. Let's get back to our father's business. Friends, we, we have a powerful sovereign. God is in control. We have a praying savior. Jesus has modeled and made the way. We have a present spirit. The question is, will we be a praying people? And will you come to Christ, our praying savior? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. God, we believe it to be true, and good news that brings great joy to all people. So God, I pray that you would use this church to reach people for Christ. God, I pray that you would use this church to engage new neighbors for the gospel. God, I pray that they would walk by faith, knowing that the battle belongs to you. God, I pray that they would see your mighty hand move in miraculous ways. And that maybe even this morning, God, they would renew their efforts in prayer. God, we know that you accomplish your victories through the prayers of your people. And maybe there's somebody this, here this morning 
who needs to become one of your people, who needs to be adopted into your family. And the only way that can happen, oh God, is through Christ, your son. So if you're here this morning, friends, and you need to come to Christ, I invite you to come. You might say, Jeff, I can't come. You don't know what I did. No, I don't know what you did, but I know what Jesus did. And what he did is stronger than what you did, I guarantee it. So you come to him this morning. You'll have pastors at the front of the room that would love to pray with you and for you, love to counsel you. They'll be available after the service as well. And perhaps you this morning need to pray. So let's do that even now. So Lord Jesus, would you help? We pray these things in your precious and powerful name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.